Would you pray with me? Loving God, as we join Job in his conversation with God in the land of Uz, and the disciples of Jesus and Bartimaeus outside Jericho, we ask that the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts may be truly acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer, let the people say, The book of Job is one of those stories that is such a stalwart place in Western culture that we often assume we know what it's about without perhaps even having read it. I wonder how many people, no shame or blame, how many people here have read it all 42 chapters all the way through? I am very impressed. (laughs) It's a tedious book, and not so much because of the hardships that Job endures, but because of the endless talking about it that he does with his friends for 39 chapters. In fact, as most commentators will tell you, you could read the first two chapters of Job and the one, Helen's nodding her head, and the one that just read, and you would pretty much get the story of what happened with Job. And, of course, it holds a force in our literary imaginations. Archibald MacLeish, Robert Frost, the Cohen brothers, many others have all taken their turns with Job and what it means for us. It's a big tale. It is sort of a Paul Bunyan kind of tale. Job has so much good going for him, it's a little hard to imagine what it is. He has ten children, thousands upon thousands of livestock, and dozens of servants. And then one day, Satan, or perhaps translated in the Hebrew, the adversary, comes to God, and God says, Satan, what are you up to? Just checking things out on the earth, just seeing what's going on. And God sort of boasts a little bit and says, Have you seen my servant Job? He is upright and blameless among all people. And the devil, perhaps quite rightly, says, Well, of course, you've given him everything he could possibly want. I bet if you took it away, if you let your hand come on him, it might change and he would curse you. And so God takes the bait And takes the wager and lets it happen. And you know probably what happens. Messenger upon messenger comes stumbling in. They come stepping on each other's lines. Telling him about how all his livestock has been killed off. All his servants and his children having a big dinner party are all gone. Job rends his garments and throws dust on his head. And says the classic lines. Naked I came from my mother's womb. And naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all of this, Job does not charge God with any wrongdoing. And then for the next 39 chapters, Job and his three friends start talking about why should they be angry and who's in charge and who has the right to complain and who does God think God is to do this and who does Job think Job is to complain and why, of course, the central message, do bad things happen to good people. Now, frankly, I have a big problem with a God who would do this. I have a big problem with a God who would accept a bet to play around in my life or anyone else's, for that matter, just because perhaps God wants to show off a bit. 
I tr- have trouble with a God who changes the rule book that I thought we'd agreed on with a little foul play without telling me about it. And then everything gets messed up in my world. And just for good measure, you may remember the adversary, Satan, comes back and says, that's not enough, let's give him a little bit more. And he's covered with boils all over his body that he scrapes off with pieces of pottery. You see, my problem with Job is a theological problem. And if I just considered it a big, tall folktale from the ancient East, I could shove it off as something classic and interesting to read and worthy of literary imagination. In fact, it really doesn't come from the centerpiece of the Jewish or Christian faith. We don't know where the land of Uz is. We can't find it on any map. It doesn't reassert any central doctrines or the covenant. And yet we return to it again and again because it is an important book and it is part of our story and you and I have to wrestle with it. You see, Job never answers the question of why bad things happen to good people. It just keeps those questions alive for us to continue to wrestle with. In short, what happens in this book is a test of Job's integrity. Who is he really? without all the good stuff? Is he the faithful man he seems to be? In the church growing up in Independence, Missouri, we had a gentle giant of a man named Les Anson. Dark hair, handsome, looked like he could be a football player. He had been struck by polio at a young age and he had braces. And I remember him striding into church almost every Sunday moving a little bit like a large marionette. He was a gentle, kind, caring father. I remember one time being with him and his youngest daughter in a car ride home, and his youngest daughter insisted as we were stopped at a train in counting all the cars and giving the number at the end, to which he said, thank you, Liesl, that's the good news for the day. (laughs) He would take time in his lazy boy to read to his girls. He had a beautiful wife with a serene face and a backbone of steel, with a sweet disposition who would give the right tart sort of comment just when you needed it. And he had four beautiful daughters who have all grown up to be wonderful women. In addition to his polio, Les had a sister who had died in a car accident while his oldest daughter was in the car with her. And then in her 40s, his beloved wife, Layla, whom we all loved, got an incurable disease, terminal illness, and when Les couldn't take her for her dialysis, members of the church would. And I remember some of us who felt like we didn't have the same sorts of troubles that Les had, thought he was kind of the most Job-like person we knew in our midst. But I had a suspicion that's not how Les looked at it. And in fact, I played phone tag with his daughter this week to try to find out. We finally spoke this morning, and I think she's here from southern New Hampshire to be sure I got the story right. But in fact, she said one of the key attributes of her dad was that he had patience. And he was a man of integrity. And she said, ironically, he used to say all the time, no good deed goes unpunished which always made her laugh a little bit. But she said as she's gotten older, she gets the sense that what that meant is, even if times are hard, you do good anyway. That is your calling. And that is part of your faith. That's who you are. When we swing over to the gospel that Wilson read for us, we see Bartimaeus, who has a 
Job-like existence. He is a blind beggar in a society that thinks blindness is a sort of curse. That perhaps it's been punishment on you for your sins or the sins of those before you. And even though they don't want to have him mess up Jesus' day, he has the courage to cry out and ask to be helped. And after he finally talks to Jesus, without being deterred, Jesus simply says, Go. Your faith has made you well. Or literally, your faith has saved you. It has made you whole once again. Now, as I wrote you this week in my blog, that phrase, your faith has made you well or whole or saved you, may be cold comfort for friends, for family, even perhaps for you who may suffer hardship after hardship. What I think is happening in this healing story, and we heard a similar story being beautifully talked about this summer, is that this man has come with some sort of burden that he wants lifted, something that keeps him from other people, something that separates him from the main, something that alienates him, something that literally makes his life miserable. And today, for any of us, that might be a physical challenge, or it might be something more internal, a way of living, a way of thinking, perhaps some mental disturbance, or perhaps some unhelpful belief that no longer serves us and that needs to be retooled and rewired in us, or perhaps an addiction, or perhaps some kind of gut-ripping anxiety that needs some attention and some unwinding. What would it mean for your faith to save you? I guess it really depends on your definition of faith. If you think that faith means a list of beliefs, say that God is in charge, or that somehow the doctrine of the virgin birth is going to save you, or perhaps something like we all need to be kind and compassionate to people, and that matters above all, that is something that can help make you whole. It could mean what shapes your worldview. Perhaps this idea that Theodore Parker and Martin Luther King said that the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice, and oftentimes our job is to help it bend that way. Or a worldview that we must keep hope alive even when things seem hopeless. Or it could mean, like I think it does for many of us here today, that we continue to gather week after week, year after year, with like-minded and similarly seeking people. People who will listen when you cry out for help. People who will extend a hand when you need it. People who will give you a space to sort these things out and value your concerns and think they're worth hearing about. Whatever it is, I do believe that our faith, our commitment, however we experience it, however we practice, can lead us to wholeness. We may not get the things we pray for specifically, but, or the things we long for, but we will find saving power in some measure. Sometimes in a new way, a way that we didn't expect, a way that we couldn't have imagined. See, there's another part of the book of Job that I love. It was actually in the reading last week, but we didn't hear it. It comes a few chapters earlier when God, after a long silence, finally speaks to Job. And he says somewhat indignantly to him, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who and what determined its measurements. And then he goes on like a righteous Richard Attenborough from the BBC documentary series Planet Earth. And he goes on to count all the beautiful things in the world, things that go on all the time without you and I ever noticing as we're caught up in our own concerns. 
where the sea marks the line on the land, or how God fires up the morning each day, or sends lightning from the sky, or providing food for the animals, or is there when the mountain goats give birth, or gives the horse its might, or who can thunder with a voice like mine, God says. We were discussing these passages in our worship meeting on Monday and talking about the troubles in them, particularly the troubles in them for people who are facing hardship on a regular basis. And Amy pointed me to that secular canon of Netflix and YouTube and to the Gospel of Grey's Anatomy. And an episode that aired in March that you may have seen. In it, April, a young doctor who is a devout Christian has been having some struggles with her faith. Her relationship didn't work out. She lost a baby. She witnessed a black child being shot by the police. And another friend died amidst childbirth. And she's struggling mightily with what her faith means to her. And the patient is a rabbi who's being treated for some illness that the antibiotic should take care of. And instead it's having an adverse effect and his skin is coming apart. And he's about to die. Having spent time with loved ones in hospitals recently, I have found that no matter how much our technology, viruses and bacteria still have ways of evading us and eluding us. And so the rabbi is committed to being a rabbi to the very end, and so he engages her in a sort of Socratic conversation, a sort of pastoral act. And he asks April, Rabbi Eli, Where is the guarantee in the sequel that you Christians call the New Testament? Where is it written exactly that if you do this or that, you will have a guarantee? Nowhere in any faith is there a guarantee. And she says, I'm not asking for a guarantee. I'm just asking that things should be fair. And he says, fair? Was it fair when Isaac was made blind and his son betrayed him? Was it fair that Sarah had to wait 99 years for a child and then God asked her to sacrifice that child? Was it fair when Moses was stopped by the bouncer to the promised land? And he says, I'm not up on your sequel, but I get it that Jesus got a pretty raw deal. He said, nobody in the Bible lived a life free of suffering or injustice. And if they didn't, why should we? He says, if people only believed in God when things were good, then he guaranteed that after the Holocaust, there would be no more faithful Jews. Faith wouldn't be real faith, he says, if you only believed when things are good. Terrible things happen. Terrible, wonderful, devastating things happen. And he says, who the hell are you to know why? Who are you to know why some people live and some people die, some people suffer and some people have injustice You don't get to know why any more than I get to know why. Any more than I get to know why I'm dying of a pill that saves others and should have saved me but is now killing me. So you can either believe in God and goodness, or you can believe it's pointless and random and cruel, whatever makes you happier. He realizes as a pastoral presence that there's some sort of pain going on with April, and he says, is it pain? And she begins to cry, and he says, unimaginable pain? Because I know some of what that's like. God is not indifferent to our pain. You see, there's this Jewish ethical concept of tikkun olam, which means that the world is full of brokenness and it's our job to put it back together again. It assumes a broken world 
and a world in need and in pain, and our job is to fix it. I believe that Job and Bartimaeus and Sarah and Isaac and Jesus and all the rest remind us that we all get our turns in the valley of the shadow of death. None of us are spared that opportunity. It sucks to acknowledge that, but it's true. The question is always, what is going to get us through that valley? What will bring us to the other side? And what will bring us back to our spiritual center, to the ground of our being, the animator of our lives, the living God? And as many of us here in this place share the concerns that our American empire is heading more deeply into a valley of the shadow of death, needlessly separating families down at the border, attempting to erase our transgender siblings and cousins from legal existence, wanting to turn our houses of faith into armed places, essentially giving in to the cultural norms of terrorists and a lobbying terrorist domestic organization, ignoring the climate change that we have brought on God's green earth, allowing the rich to keep getting richer and the poor to keep getting poor. For some of us, it's easy to despair in light of all that. But my question is, What will our faith tell us to do? How will it help us get through it? I tend to wonder, perhaps God has made a little wager with the adversary to test our integrity, both at our own personal level and a broader level. I don't know. At the end of the day, God wants to know what we're going to stand for. What will we cry out for? Will we rely on the integrity and the power of our faith? Because I believe together our faith will save us and bring us into wholeness. Amen.